Well, good morning again. Uh, before we read the gospel lesson together, let me pray for us. Father, first we pray for our sisters and our brothers in Sri Lanka, many of whom are in mourning, all of whom are in shock after being targeted with violence as they worshipped you this morning. We are very aware, very mindful of the fact that the hope of the resurrection for them is not a metaphor. It's not a piece of tradition. We are very mindful that the hope of the resurrection is real. It is as real as their own flesh and blood. And so we pray, Father, that you would comfort them in that hope. And we also pray that you would help us to remember that this resurrection hope is real for us too, as real as our own flesh and blood. And so we ask that as we hear your word and read it and think about it and talk about it together, that you would remind us of that hope, that you would visit us with that hope, that you would come to us in each of the places where we find ourselves. Those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, those of us who feel really near to you and those of us who feel far from you, Father, meet us with the grace of Christ and change us by it. And it is in the name of the risen Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's uh, gospel lesson is a story that might be familiar. You might recognize uh, parts of it, even if you're not really familiar with the rest of the Bible. It is the story of the guy that we call Doubting Thomas. So I'm going to read from John 20 for us, and uh, you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can just listen as I read from John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So I'd like to start this morning by telling you a story. And I have to confess to you right away that this uh, story, I'm about 99% sure it is not true. It's a totally made-up story. But I really like it, so I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Here, here's the story. A little boy was given a homework assignment uh, to write about his family history and to be sure that he included a lot of uh, autobiographical detail in it. It's a one-page report he had to do, and uh, this kid was pretty studious. He wanted to write the best report that he could write, so he figured he'd start at the beginning. He got a little notebook, and he went to his mom, 
Now his mom was intently working on something else at the time. But this is what he said to her. He said, Mom, tell me about how I was born. So like I said, the mom was a little bit distracted. She didn't quite hear the question as he intended it to be heard. And she thought to herself, wow, I cannot believe he's asking me about this right now. I'm definitely not going to get into all of that. So she fell back on the old standby. She said, well, the stork brought you to us. The kid looked a little puzzled, but he studiously wrote it down in his notebook. A couple days later, after he had dinner with his grandparents... He decided that he'd try to get a little bit more information uh, about the family. So he asked his grandmother, um, Grandma, how was my mom born? Well, the grandma was really proper, really dignified. She, she thought, I'm definitely not going to get into that. And so she also fell back on the old standby. She said, well, the stork brought your mother to us. So while the grandma was there, he, he tried to get more of the family history straight. He said, Grandma, how, how were you born? She, of course, said, the stork brought me. So this kid now, he figured he had enough information to at least start his report. So he went up to his bedroom and he sat down to write. And this was the first line in his report. There has not been a normal birth in my family in many generations. (laughs) I love that story. And I love that story in part because of the image that we're left with this wise, world-weary kid who knows what's up, surrounded by a bunch of very well-meaning but deluded clowns. (laughs) And it makes me think of Thomas. It makes me think about what Thomas must have felt when his friends, these guys that he has spent the last three years of his life with, these guys with whom he has gone through some of the most excruciating days in the last week, when they come up to him and they excitedly tell him against all reason, against all common sense, against everything that Thomas knew to be true of the world he lived in, they come up to him and they say, we have seen Jesus alive. And then there's Thomas. Thomas, the the world-weary Thomas, the wise Thomas, who knows what's up, surrounded by a bunch of well-meaning but deluded clowns. And even though the Apostle John tells us that his nickname was the twin, i got to be honest that my guess is it's been about 2,000 years since anyone's ever called him the twin, because we have a name for this guy. We call him Doubting Thomas. But church, I I don't think that's fair. I think if Thomas is going to have any name at all, maybe he should be normal Thomas. Because really, who would believe the story that he had just been told? You can hardly blame Thomas for responding in the way that he did, unless, of course, Thomas had awakened that Sunday morning in a world that was very different than the one that he had gone to sleep in the night before. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Here's, here's what happened in those hours before Thomas's famous last words. Early that morning, Mary Magdalene and some other women had gone to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. They went there that morning because Jesus had been hastily taken down from the cross and they needed to care for his body in the proper way. So the women are doing what needs to be done while the men are locked away, cowering together in a room somewhere. But when the women get there, it's not what they expected. 
The stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. The body is not there. And they get this angelic message to go and to tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. (laughs) So that's what they do. They go and they tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Luke, in his gospel, makes it very clear that none of them, none of them believed a word that these women said. Fast forward to later that evening at the end of what was no doubt a very strange and very difficult day. The disciples are locked in a room together doing whatever it is that really sad, really scared people do. And Jesus appears in the midst of them. It's in verse 20 in in the passage right before the one we read. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands. And he shows them his side where the spear had gone in. Jesus shows them his wounds. It is a curious thing. It is a beautiful thing. I mean, first of all, why does Jesus still bear the wounds of his crucifixion? I mean, if he, if he can be resurrected, then why can't his wounds be erased? Why does he still bear in his body the marks of his suffering and death. It's obvious this isn't an oversight for Jesus. It's not something that he's ashamed of. It's not something that he wants to hide. In fact, his wounds are the very first thing that he wants his friends to see. Look at my hands. Look at my side. It's curious. It's beautiful. It's filled with meaning, I think, that could change people like you and me forever. And this brings us to the beginning of the part of the story that we read. It comes to one of the famous lines of the Gospels, probably one of my favorite lines in the Gospels. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Talk about missing something important. It's this comically understated line. But I think it tells us something very important about Thomas, an awful lot about Thomas. I mean, it should be really clear that Thomas didn't forget the plan to meet up with the rest of the guys in the safe house. He didn't forget. But he's not there with them. Why? It's not because he lost his copy of the directions. I mean, these guys had been his life for the last three years. These guys are the ones who can understand precisely what he is going through right now. These men are the only people on the entire planet who can understand the depth of the grief that he feels in that moment. But he is not with them. Why? Well, you know, there's only two other times we ever hear anything about Thomas before this moment. The first is in John 11, and I think it goes a long way towards telling us why Thomas had not shown up that night. Back in John 11, Jesus had asked the disciples to travel with him to a town called Bethany because their friend Lazarus had died. But the disciples, they don't want to go, and they're trying to talk Jesus out of going because the last time they were in Bethany, people tried to kill Jesus. So they're desperate that he wouldn't go, but Jesus is resolute, and he says, we have to go. And then this, this is the first time we ever hear from Thomas. And this is what he says. Let us go also, that we may die with him. 
all you cowards. You can do whatever you want, but I am going with him. I am ready to go. I will follow Jesus anywhere, even if it means that I have to die. If he says go, I'm going to go. In church, that's Thomas. You know, we don't know much about him, but I think it's enough. I think it's enough for us to know that Thomas is fiercely loyal to Jesus. It's enough for us to know that he has pinned all of his hopes on Jesus. It's enough for us to know that he has staked his own life on the life of Jesus, his own destiny on the destiny of Jesus. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us at all that he wasn't there on that first Easter evening. Because why would he be in a matter of a few dark hours his whole life has fallen apart the one on whom he had pinned all of his hopes has died and Thomas has lost his way his own wound was too great and now all that's left for him is to put the pieces of life together on his own And church, I wonder how many of us here this morning feel like Thomas or similar to Thomas, alone. Like we're trying to put all the pieces of life together just by ourselves and it's not working. That the wound is too great. Like we have lost our way. Well, that's Thomas. Our brother Thomas. And so that's why when the rest of the guys track him down and they tell him what's happened, it's completely absurd to him. It's the the dumbest thing he's ever heard in his life because here's world-weary, wise Thomas, the one who really knows what's up, surrounded by a bunch of well-meaning but deluded friends. And so to underline the absurdity of it, to underline how angry it makes him, he says the most outlandish, the most shocking, the most troublesome thing he can think to say to get them away. Unless I see the marks in his hands. No, no, no. Unless I put my finger into his hands. Unless I put my hand into the wound on his side. I will never believe. Well, fast forward about a week, eight days to be exact. One of the great mysteries of this story is what must have happened in the intervening week to make Thomas go out and be with his friends again. I'm sure they begged with him. I'm sure that they pleaded with him. And I'm also sure that there was something in their intensity, something that felt so real about their joy, that he was curious. They are definitely feeling something that I cannot feel. And of course, by now, the rumors are flying wildly about the whole country. There's already these strange conspiracy theories floating around about what might have happened to Jesus. I mean, the tomb was empty and the body was gone and no one was disputing that, not least the Romans who I think had the most to lose with that story. 
But for whatever reason, a week has passed and Thomas relents and he goes with his friends. And I love it because it looks like they have arranged it to be exactly like it was. Like everybody stand in the same spot, same room, same locked door. Just everybody do like we did last time. And sure enough, Jesus comes and stands in the midst of them and he says the same thing, peace be with you. And then without hesitation, he turns towards Thomas And with a clear voice, he gives him the most beautiful invitation he has ever heard in his life. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, Thomas, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas. Believe. So we'll get back to Thomas and what he did or didn't do and said or didn't say in a minute. I mean, he's definitely important in this story, but I don't want us to be mistaken. (laughs) The main player in this story is Jesus. And there are two things about what Jesus does with and for Thomas here that go right to the heart of who Jesus really is and right to the heart of what that means for people like you and me right here this morning on Easter Sunday morning. The first thing is that Jesus meets Thomas exactly where Thomas is. And church, I confess, I could hear that a million days in a row, and I would never get tired of it because I am Thomas more often than I am not. I mean, how hair-raising would it have been to be Thomas in that moment? I mean, the thing you thought was absurd, the thing you thought was unbelievable, it's just happened, and, and it's terrifying. Thomas has realized all in one second that he is not living in the world that he thought he was living in, that there was more to this world, that it was open, that there was more than what he could see and taste and feel and touch with his senses. It's the same world we live in. Even if we try to convince ourselves and tell ourselves it's not, that's the world we live in. And Thomas realized it's true. Something unbearably new, something unspeakably wonderful has happened. He's not looking at a translucent ghost. He's looking at Jesus, the same one he always knew, but somehow more powerful, more present, more real than he had ever been. It's the same Jesus, but different all at once. It's not like Thomas figured that out. (laughs) Before he could even begin to figure it out, Jesus looks at him and says his name. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't say, wow, Thomas, I told you three times I was going to rise again. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Thomas, how come you're so petulant? How come you have to be so thick? How come you have to be so hard-headed? Thomas, how come you have to make everyone around you feel so small and silly? Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, why couldn't you trust me? He doesn't say any of that stuff. Jesus meets Thomas exactly where Thomas is. He goes straight to Thomas and he goes straight to his pain. He goes straight to Thomas's wounds. He goes right to the place where Thomas was no doubt starting to feel his deepest shame, and he meets them there. He meets him there with unfathomable grace. 
I know what you said, Thomas. And I know who you are. And I didn't come despite those things. I came because of those things. I'm here, Thomas, for you. I'm here for you. And church, this is always how Jesus comes to people like us. He meets us in the places where we are. I mean, he knows the stuff that we have done. He knows the wrecks we've made out of stuff all around us. He knows that we can't put the pieces of our life together on our own. He knows who we are. (laughs) And he comes to us not despite those things, but precisely because of them. And he comes to us with an invitation. He says our name. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I know there are some of us here this morning, we hear that invitation from Jesus, and maybe it's the first time or the first time in a really long time that we've even thought about Jesus like that. And others of us here are really familiar with that invitation, and what we need to do is to stop running away and turn around and see Jesus for who he really is. (laughs) The one who comes not despite of who we are, but precisely because we are who we are. And wherever we fall, we can be sure that when we look at that Jesus, we will be looking at the same risen Jesus Thomas was staring down and that he is offering us the same thing that he offered to Thomas. And that's the second thing about Jesus here. He doesn't just meet Thomas where Thomas needed to be met. He offers Thomas the one thing that Thomas really needs. Jesus offers Thomas his own wounds. This brings us back to that curious mystery, that that beautiful mystery. Jesus shows Thomas the signatures of his self-giving love because they are the one clear sign that Thomas needs to know that he has in fact pinned his hopes and his destiny on the one who can deliver beyond his wildest expectations. It is breathtaking grace. Thomas, the wounded God, is here for you. Church, Jesus doesn't hover above your pain or my pain. He doesn't look at it from afar like he's looking through a telescope. Jesus enters deeply into our pain and our shame and our wounds and he takes them on his back and he allows himself to be crushed by it. Like the poet Denise Levertov says, every sorrow and desolation he saw and sorrowed in kinship. And he does this so that he can deal evil and deal death and the sin that caused it, your sin and mine, so that he can deal those things a mortal wound. And his resurrection church is the infallible witness that one day he is going to finish that stuff off forever and it will be gone forever. Forever. 
And that means that his still present wounds in his hand and in his side are the infallible witness of his love for people like you and me. His forgiveness, his healing, his restoration. So now we can come back to Thomas. And I got to tell you, I don't know. I don't know if Thomas made good on Jesus' invitation to touch his hands and his side. I don't know. One of my favorite things about this story is that John doesn't tell us what Thomas did. So you can debate about that over Easter lunch if you want. But here's the one thing I do know. The guy that we have always called the doubter makes the most profound and the most personal confession of faith of anyone in the New Testament. He looks at Jesus who has come for him. And he says, my Lord and my God. Church, the wounded God stands before all of us again in his risen power this morning. Blessed are the ones, Jesus said, who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. That's you and me. That's the church. Wherever you are this morning, in whatever place you find yourself this morning, do not disbelieve. Believe. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see and to hear and to feel and to believe. To believe that you love us enough to come to us in exactly the place where we are. That you give us exactly the thing that we need. That we are healed by your wounds. We thank you and ask you to give us whatever we need to believe. We pray this in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.